morning, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Jim, and if I've never met you before, I'd love to meet you after the service today and welcome you to our church. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We're continuing to work through the book of Acts. We're going to get chapter 18 in before Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then we'll get to 19 probably next year, give or take. But if you're using one of the chair Bibles, it's going to be on page 927. I want to begin by giving you some demographic data. The the latest I could find, the most up-to-date I could find, was from 2010. So this is uh, six years past. But in 2010, there were counted seven... 78,506 people in Island County. So that's from 2010. Take it up with the government if you don't agree with that data. Um, Of that number, of that 78,506 people, 7,546 identified as evangelical Protestants. That works out to roughly 9.6%. Now, why do I share that number with you? I share it because it puts a little objective truth to what I feel sometimes and what you probably have felt from another times, that, that we are in a minority, even just on the island, not even not even talking about the country. But on our island here, those of us who believe in Jesus as our Savior and believe that the Bible is true, there's 9.6% of us back in 2010. I don't know what that number has done since, but it can feel like a pretty small number. Not even 10% of the population And in some ways, it doesn't probably surprise you. Because again, when when I'm out in the community, I actually find myself assuming people are not believers. I've never had that where I'm going to assume that the person I meet is a believer. That's just sort of built into me as a person. I assume that the people I meet here, but, but even in other places I've lived, are far away from God. The number also demonstrates, I think, that efforts to bring people to Christ will be an uphill battle. First of all, there's just not that many of us. We're a small and mighty number. 10% doesn't give you great influence. If one of our political parties had 10% of the votes in, let's say, the Senate, they really couldn't get much done. And often, I think as believers, we can feel that we can't get much done. 
But now that I've done that to you, (laughs) I'm just a cheery fellow. I want to encourage you with Acts 18 today. Because in some ways, Paul was in the same boat as us. Hugely outnumbered and facing an uphill battle. Because we've been given a job to do, and that is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And it can be easy to be discouraged when it feels like there are so few of us here. And in fact, in our story, God takes time to encourage Paul about the work that he is called to do. It's that same work, to make disciples of Jesus. We engage in this on Whidbey Island. In our story today, Paul has entered the city of Corinth. Let me tell you a little bit about the city of Corinth. Commentator Daryl Bach describes Corinth in this way. Its population is estimated to have been about 200,000, a significant size for an ancient city and larger than Athens. So it was a big city. There were a lot of people comparatively in Corinth. It had a reputation for prosperity and licentiousness. So they were a bunch of rich sinners. Horace, an ancient writer, not, not a Christian, calls it a town where only the tough survive. And he ends, Daryl Bach ends his comments with this, it was the Las Vegas of its time. In fact, to Corinthianize, to verbalize the word Corinth could be used as a euphemism euphemism for sex outside of marriage. And a Corinthian girl was used as a euphemism for a prostitute. That is the town in which Paul found himself. A tough town, a town full of people far, far from Jesus. And there were a lot of them. And so all of these feelings, of feeling outnumbered, of of looking at people and saying, God, how are you going to bring them to repentance? Because they are so far from you. How was Paul going to bring the gospel to this place? And in the same way, as we look at our culture, as we look at our island, and oftentimes we can feel outnumbered and that we are engaged in an uphill battle, how can we find encouragement just as Paul did? Big idea if you're using your outline in your bulletin is this, that we are able to engage in the mission of making disciples through God's sovereignty. 
And that's going to be the answer to that question. How can we make disciples here? How could Paul make disciples in Corinth through the very sovereignty of God? So let's look at God being sovereign in providing in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 18. Again, it's on page 927 in your chair Bible. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So again, this is part of the trip that Paul is engaged on, and he leaves Athens, and he goes to Corinth. He meets a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. We'll meet them later on in the book. They will play a bigger role. They become partners, missionary partners, with Paul. And even though it doesn't explicitly say it, because of what we know about them, they are probably already believers at this time, though it makes particular mention of them being Jewish. So they were Jewish background believers, just like Paul. They were, as we see in verse 2, a part of a Roman command that kicked out Jews who were talking about Jesus. We know about this decree from history. The decree that Claudius made was probably the one he made in A.D. 49. So that's about when this time period happened. It helps us to mark uh, when this happened in time making this chapter about 16 years after Jesus died, approximately. From history, we know that the decree was aimed at those who, quote, created civil disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, which was a misunderstanding of the word Christ. So they misspelled it in history. Uh, Scholars tell us it was probably due to riots caused over in the, within the Jewish community between Jews who wanted to stay Jewish and those who had converted to Christ. And we've seen these throughout the book of Acts. That when the gospel is proclaimed, sometimes people rioted. And because of that, Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome, including Jews who had become Christians like Priscilla and Aquila. So again, in a city that is known for being pagan, and this is the first time the gospel is coming to Corinth through Paul, God provides two other believers. God is saying to Paul, you are not alone in what I've called you to do. And this is underlined by what I call the sovereignty of coincidence. Guess what they happen to do for a living? They are tent makers or leather workers, just like Paul. Whenever you see a coincidence in the Bible, recognize it is not a coincidence. 
So you've got this huge city, again, one of the bigger cities of that time period, and there just happened to be these two Christians, and they just happened to do the same work that Paul did. Just happened to happen. We see God sovereignly providing this couple as partners and friends in the gospel. It is a reminder to us that God knows what we need and God will provide it. God used the edict of Claudius that kicked the Jews out of Rome to provide some friends for Paul. God can move the nations when he wants. And God does. And he does it for the good of his people and the spread of the gospel. And God used Claudius to bring, one of the things he used it for was to bring some friends and co-workers to Paul when he needed it. This tells us two things about the nature of Christian friendship. The first one is that God will sovereignly provide the relationships we need. Again, there are no accidents, there are no coincidences where God is concerned, and God brought this couple that were both Christians, they were both tent makers, there was common shared life and God knew exactly when Paul needed it and he provided it. The second thing that we learn about Christian relationships is that Christian relationships always include a missional component. When God brings us together in community, we are friends. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, but we are also co-workers for the gospel. And we will see this. We'll get introduced later to what Priscilla and Aquila are doing, and that's exactly what they are doing. They are serving with Paul in his ministry. So we have real friends, but we always have that working relationship where God has brought us together not just to be friends, but he's brought us together for the spread of the gospel, to work together. He knows who we need to do the work that we need to do. And God, by his sovereignty, always supplies. You are not alone. God always gathers his people and calls us to live in community, not separate little islands, but he calls us to be friends and co-workers for the gospel. Secondly, we see Paul being encouraged by God sovereignly providing friends and co-workers for him. We also see encouragement in God being sovereign in salvation. Let's look at verses 5 to 11. 
When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul, as was his pattern, as we have seen before in the book of Acts, he first goes to the Jewish community of the city. And here, in verse 6, that a great majority of them oppose him and revile him. They want nothing to do with his message about Jesus. And again, as was his custom, after he spent time with them and after hearing their rejection of Jesus, he says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. So in verse 7, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. That is a Gentile who was not a full convert to Judaism, but knew of the Jewish religion. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. The two specific individuals mentioned represent the two people groups of Jew and Gentile. God shows his sovereignty in that while in mass the Jewish community did not accept the words about Jesus, there was one who did, a man named Crispus. And when Paul goes to the Gentiles, he meets a man named Titius Justus, and he comes to faith in Christ as well. God is demonstrating through these people that even though many will reject Jesus, there will always be some who believe. In fact, at the end of verse 8, it said, And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. They were no moral majority at this time, but God was working in that city. Again, when we make the comparison, as scholar Daryl Bach did to Las Vegas, of a town known for reputation of sin, even there, God saves people for himself from among the Jews and among the Gentiles, from all the different groups that exist in the different cities and the different places in which we live, God is working among all peoples and in all places. And one of the reasons I describe the reputation of Corinth to you is this. 
if God can save someone from Corinth, he can save somebody from anywhere. (laughs) There is no place that is too far for the reach of God. There's no people group so stubborn in their rejection that they cannot be reached by Jesus Christ. Now, in some ways, our area has a reputation. Whether you call it the left coast, (laughs) or as was told for me when we were moving out here, Jim, it's going to be a different place. (laughs) The Pacific Northwest and Whidbey Island will never be too far away from the sovereign hand of God. God works everywhere and with every group of people. He's working among the South End hippies. He's working among the North End Navy people. He's even working in Payless, where I'm at every day. He is working on our island. And no one you know is too far away from God. And so God demonstrates that in having people come to Christ. It's not huge numbers. It's not the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people come to Christ in one afternoon. But people are coming to Christ. And then God speaks to Paul in a vision. He's shown him that he is working, and now he tells him that he is working. Let's start at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, I want to take the different parts of that message. And the first one is this the command to keep speaking. Notice, notice how it's said in verse. Nine, do not be afraid. How often does fear shut your mouth? But if we truly believe in a sovereign God who controls governments and created stars and formed planets, then we don't have to be afraid. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. If God is working in our communities, if we know that he is working by his sovereign will on our island, then we must keep speaking. We must keep sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And when he says... 
do not be silent. The assumption is, is that Paul, even Paul, Mr. Missionary, will want to be silent. <laughs> Again, sometimes I think we forget that the Apostle Paul was a real person. <laughs> Let me tell you, if you're afraid, if, you're, if, you're, if fear sometimes keeps you from speaking, you're in good company. <laughs> Because the guy who brought the gospel to places it had never been, who had written books of the Bible, God had to tell him to keep talking too. He says, keep on speaking. When we believe in a sovereign God, that fear goes away and our mouths are free to speak the good news of Jesus Christ. Secondly, there's a promise. Look at verse 10. For, or because, good connecting word right there, I am with you. This is a large theme that runs throughout your Bible that I want to give you a few examples of, but just know it is throughout your Bible. This promise that God is with his people. One of my favorite places to find this is in Exodus chapter 33, verse 15, which says this. This is Moses speaking to God. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. <laughs> Unless you go with us, I don't want to go. <laughs> And God promises to be with him and be with the people of Israel. You connect that to a verse like Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, which contains a promise from God that says this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Connect that to John 14, where Jesus is talking about sending the Spirit after he leaves he says this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, indwells each believer so that he is always there. Again, when, when Paul felt alone in Corinth, when you feel alone in your community, God is there. He is with you, and he will never leave you. Now, I want to say something about the second part of that promise in verse 10. God adds this time, and no one will attack you to harm you. Now, this is a specific promise given to Paul at this specific time, because we know from the other stories of Paul there were times that he was attacked and was harmed. Okay, you read some of these stories where he is shipwrecked, where he is beaten within an inch of his life. Now in this particular case, in this particular story, God makes a promise. And I want you to see that he's making a promise here. That this time, because we're going to come back to this promise later, this time no one will attack you or harm you. 
Now, when we talk about God being with us, he does not always make the promise that no one will attack us or harm us, just like with Paul. But what we do have every time is that when God is with us, he is our refuge and our fortress, our help in time of need. And we can always find refuge and strength in God. The third part of this vision Again, given to encourage Paul in his work. End of verse 10. It's again a reason why he can go on speaking. For I have many in this city who are my people. Now let's start with what this has to mean at a minimum. At a very minimum what we need to see in this text is that God knows who will believe in the message of the gospel. That God has foreknowledge, knowledge that he knows will come true in the future. But I think it's a little stronger than that because of the confidence by which God speaks. I have many in this city who are my people. They are his. But in the context, he's saying, this is why you can continue working, Paul. And we find out in verse 11 that Paul stays a year and a half speaking to the city at Corinth. And so in some ways we can think of it this way, that God has his people in this city, they just don't know it yet. And in one sense, our job is finding those people. <laughs> but they are already his. Because God knows in his sovereignty. To God, they are his people. We don't know it yet, and maybe they don't know it yet. <laughs> But again, it helps us to understand what we're called to do. That God has a people in a place. And we are called to speak the message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died and rose again, and that by faith we can be forgiven and reconciled to the God who created us and have the hope of eternal life. And in one sense, we're just finding those who are already his. We don't have to make them into his. He's already done that. Our job is to keep on speaking. And we can know that God will save people from whatever community we're in. I have many in this city who are my people. God has many people on this island. And he has called us to go out into the island and find them. And not to close our mouths, but to open our mouths with the gospel. The third way we see God's sovereignty is in promises kept. So again, God made the promise that no one will attack you 
or to harm you. But let's read in verses 12 to 17. But when Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So the Jews in this community are angry, and they bring him to Gallio, who was in charge. He was the Roman officer, Roman government official there, and they're bringing him to court. And right now, Paul's thinking, what about that promise? <laughs> they bring him before the tribunal, they bring him into court, verse 13, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be the judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. As we talked about in adult Sunday school this morning, government officials back then could really do what they wanted. You didn't vote for them, they were appointed by the emperor, and this guy could make real trouble for Paul, no problem. He probably had the authority to kill Paul right there if he wanted. And so Paul is in real trouble. And Paul is about to defend himself. And at that moment, God gives Gallio the gift of apathy. <laughs> and Gallio's like, I don't care. Get out of here. <laughs> this is a religious thing. Just go. Just, just get out of here. I, I don't care. Paul was in real trouble. The system of justice back then is that these officials had so much more freedom to do what they wanted. And Paul doesn't even get to defend himself. God has Gallio interject without doing anything. <laughs> I mean, to me, this is a sign of sovereignty of God saying, look, Paul, I got this. He doesn't even have time to explain himself, but Gallio, in his God-given apathy, dismisses it. This is hammered home in verse 17, because the people are still really mad. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. There was literally a man beat in front of him, and he didn't care a lick. God in his sovereignty. Again, Paul did nothing to defend himself. Paul did nothing to get himself out of this situation God moved, and God kept his promise. And in the same way, God keeps his promises to us. 
It didn't matter that we were dealing with the Roman government, one of the most powerful governments of that time, the superpower. God intervened and saved Paul from any attack. That is the God we serve. He is sovereign over all governments and all people in all places. No matter how powerful they are, God is more powerful and he will keep his promises. Let me end with this. God has called us to the mission field of Whidbey Island. He's called us to other places too, but he has definitely called us here. And when we think about being the 9.6%, we can find discouragement quickly. Oh, if it were just a little easier. But Paul was in the same place in Corinth. He was outnumbered and surrounded by people who were far from God. And God encouraged him in sovereignly providing. God encouraged him in bringing people to Christ and giving that vision of saying, I have people here. And God encouraged Paul by sovereignly intervening in his court case so that God showed himself to keep his promises to protect Paul. When we understand this side of God, when we understand his sovereignty and how it works, we recognize that we are able to do what he has called us to do. Not according to us, but according to him. He will give us what we need He is working in the hearts of our neighbors and the people in our community and he will keep his promises to be with us and never forsake us. We are able to engage in the mission of making disciples here and anywhere we go because of the sovereign God that we serve. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this story of Corinth. And God, that as you saved many out of the city of Corinth, that you would continue to save people in Whidbey Island, that you would use us as your missionaries to bring the gospel to those who are far from you, and that we would not trust in our abilities, but that we would trust in your sovereign hand and will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite those who are helping with